You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. few weeks, we have been working through a series on the Ten Commandments, and we have titled this series, The Rule of Love. We've been framing up the Ten Commandments as ten different perspectives on the life of love. If you were to talk to any person in our society today, and you were to ask them, are you trying to live the life of love? Are you about the life of love? They would all likely say yes. But we all know that how you define the life of love, how you define love, has a great impact on the life that you live. And so what we have come to the Ten Commandments to do is to investigate, to explore the moral and ethical framework of the historic Christian church through one of the central ethical passages of the Bible, the Ten Commandments. And today we come to the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. And we got a lot to get into today, so I just want to get right into it. And we're going to approach this text through two points. How we steal and how we heal. How we steal and how we heal. So let's take a look at our first point. How we steal. Now, every time we come to one of the Ten Commandments, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is how important the Exodus context is for not only understanding the whole of the Ten Commandments, but for understanding each of the Ten Commandments. The context of the Exodus really fills in the background that makes sense of each of the Ten Commandments. And the Eighth Commandment is no different. What is the context in which Israel receives the law? What is the context in which God says to his people, you shall not steal? Well, if we think back to earlier in the the Exodus narrative, one of the things that we can see is that Israel had suffered mass theft. They had suffered mass theft during their sojourn in Egypt. Their labor had been stolen by Egypt for the enrichment of their society. Their dignity had been stolen by Egypt through harsh oppression. Their baby boys had been stolen through the evil policies of Pharaoh. Their joy, their peace, and their hope had been stolen through the entire experience of enslavement and oppression. Their loss, I want you to see, was both material and immaterial. So when God brings his people to Mount Sinai and tells them, you shall not steal, it would have reverberated very deeply and in a personal way with God's people. There would have been no doubt in their minds as to why this was a crucial communal ethic because they had personally experienced the negative effects of theft. Because they themselves had been touched in a negative way by theft. They could understand why it was important for this ethic to be in place in their community. The people of Israel had been objects of theft. 
And now they are told that they must not become subjects of theft. But what exactly is in view in this commandment? Like, like we have said throughout this series, if you just take each of these commandments at face value, you may fail to realize how much each of these commandments cover. They are like a hyperlink that takes you to an entirely different website filled with all this information. Every commandment you click on is like a hyperlink. But how should we understand the teaching of the Eighth Commandment? I want us to, to allow our thinking to be guided by these two different primary expressions of theft. Theft comes in two primary expressions. Unjust taking of what belongs to another and unjust keeping of what belongs to another. It's unjust taking of what belongs to another and it's unjust keeping of what belongs to another. Now, when it comes to unjust taking, it's a very recognizable paradigm, isn't it? That's how we primarily understand theft when it comes to money and material goods. We know that it's unethical to steal our neighbor's car. We know it's wrong to shoplift, stealing merchandise for which we have not paid. This aspect of theft is clear to us. But money and material possessions are not the only resources that we have. So theft can happen beyond the material. What does this look like exactly? Well, I think we can say that we take our neighbor's peace away from them by fomenting anxiety in their lives. We take our neighbor's joy away from them by bringing them discouragement through destructive criticism. We take our neighbor's sense of belonging away from them by making them feel like outsiders. We still influence by taking credit when the credit belongs to somebody else. We steal power by stealing the reputations of our competitors through slander. But we'll get to that one in a more robust way next week. Theft involves more than taking money and material goods. We are guilty of theft when we unjustly take material goods and immaterial goods from our neighbors. That's unjust taking. But there's another expression of theft that gets a pass far too often in our lives. And that is unjust keeping. Unjust keeping is much less recognizable to us. But when this aspect of theft sinks in, all of our pretenses of being obedient to this commandment immediately vanish. If you ever thought that this might be one of those commandments that you're actually obeying. Think again. We steal from our poor neighbors by unjustly keeping material goods that should be theirs because God gave these material goods to us to share with them. This has been a consistent perspective on our Christian ethic throughout church history. And if you want to verify it, let me read you a few quotes from the church fathers. Chrysostom said this. He said, 
Not to enable the poor to share in our goods is to steal from them and deprive them of life. The goods we possess are not ours, but theirs. Gregory the Great said, when we attend to the needs of those in want, we give them what is theirs, not ours. More than performing works of mercy, we are paying a debt of justice. Ambrose said, it is no less a crime to take from him that has than to refuse to comfort the needy when you can and are well off. You're not convinced yet. All right, let's keep going. Basil of Caesarea said this, now someone who takes a man who is clothed and renders him naked would be termed a robber. But when someone fails to clothe the naked while he is able to do this, is such a man deserving of any other appellation? The bread which you hold back belongs to the hungry. The coat which you guard in your locked storage chest belongs to the naked. The footwear moldering in your closet belongs to those without shoes. The silver that you keep hidden in a safe place belongs to the one in need. Thus, however many are those whom you could have provided for, so many are those whom you wrong. This brings us to a, a key consideration as it comes to the biblical picture of possessions and money. Something very, very, very important that must get into our heads is the difference between stewardship and ownership. Stewardship and ownership. You know, there's really only one owner that's listed in the Bible, and it's God. You know what that makes everyone else? Stewards. You can be a good steward. You can be a bad steward. You can be an evil steward. You can be a lazy steward. But you will only ever be a steward because you came into this world naked, and you're going to leave naked. That's how we say it where I come from. And we must get it through our heads. Inasmuch as we see ourselves as owners, we will always be betraying our calling from God on this point. It's not until you realize that you have been given something from the owner to steward that you will begin to think rightly about the things under your care. But our unjust keeping does not just consist of money and material goods. I need you to hear me. I need you to hear me. Our unjust keeping does not just consist of money and material goods. We unjustly keep back encouragement that belongs to our neighbor. We unjustly keep back care that belongs to our neighbor. We unjustly keep back kindness and goodness that belongs to our neighbors. We unjustly keep back gospel truth that belongs to our neighbors out of fear or self-consciousness or a simple lack of love. But just as a little illustration, what would you call it if you gave me a turkey to deliver to one of our poor neighbors for Thanksgiving and instead of delivering it, I kept it for myself. And when you confronted me about it, I said, ah, you know what? Yeah, I got busy and, and tied up. And 
And then I started to think about it like it'd be pretty awkward to show up on someone's steps with a turkey. So I just kept it. The Lord gave you good news to share with spiritually poor neighbors. And when you keep it to yourself, when you fail or refuse to share the gospel with your neighbors, you are guilty of theft. You are robbing the spiritually poor who are languishing, trying to get help from idols that cannot answer. And make no mistake, our excuses about busyness and awkwardness do not get us off of the hook. There is a wealth of immaterial goods that the Lord has specifically given to us so that we would give them to our neighbors. And if those goods do not pass through us to our neighbors, we are thieves. We are thieves. It happens with material resources and it happens with immaterial resources. It happens with the gospel. It happens with the truth of the word. If this doesn't make you quake, you have not quite digested what I'm saying here. This is one of the most sobering realities for us as we live in the world and profess to be followers of Jesus. The more and more you follow the, the, the story of Jesus and the lives of the people who followed him, the more and more it should cause you to interrogate your own life and your own ways of being in the world. I want you to consider these things and this framework. Theft is unjust taking and unjust keeping. There is a, an old story about a rabbi who was visited by a very disturbed rich man. And the rabbi took the rich man by the hand and he took him to a window. And he said, what do you see through that window? And he said, I see men, women, and children. And then he took the rich man by the hand and he took him to a mirror and he said, what do you see in the mirror? And he said, I see myself. And he said, this is just the thing. Both of these are pieces of glass. But when a little bit of silver is put up on the one, you no longer cease to see yourself and cannot see people. And the same thing happens with our money. And that translates into our other resources as well. So often all we see is ourselves. We're afflicted with a narcissistic spirit. So we only care about ourselves and we're always working on our own pet peeves and concerns. We don't have enough vision to consider what's going on around us in the lives of the people in our lives who are hurting, languishing, suffering, in need. God's calling us to something better. There is so much, y'all, that we keep back. There's so much that we keep back, we don't even realize it. Spouses, we keep back from one another what we ought to be given to one another. Husbands, you know the paradigm. Jesus lifted the stander up to himself. You're to love your wife like I love the church. That means holding nothing back. 
You ought to be constantly, constantly giving, nourishing her with the water of the word, seeking her best interest, serving, blessing. And when you hold it back, you're stealing from your wife. Sisters who are married, the same thing goes in with respect to your husband. Are you holding back from him? Are you stealing from your own husband? Parents, are we stealing from our children when we fail to raise them in the love of Christ? When we don't invest in them? When we don't give them the time that they ought to get from us? When we don't give them the attention that they ought to get from us? When we're constantly on the phone and yeah, 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 that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Theft. Call it what it is. If it's a hard word for you to hear, be reminded of the fact that my calling is to offend you all the way to glory. The gospel is an offense, but it's an offense that heals. It's, a, it's, a, it's the cut of a scalpel, not a sword. It's the surgeon at work. We steal from our friends when we don't establish patterns of regular connection. When we don't show up in times of need. When we don't tell them the hard thing that they need to hear but don't want to hear, it's theft. God gave you truth to give to them. And God gave them truth to give to you. We steal from our brothers and sisters in the faith. We steal from our neighbors. Listen, here's the deal. Why is this important? Because remember, this falls in the second table of the law, which is all about neighbor love. And you can't love people when you're stealing from them. And you can't love God if you're refusing to trust him with the substance of your life so that you can fearlessly love your neighbors as he commands. Think about it. God is the one who gave my neighbor and my brother and my sister what they have. And he has ordained what they should be given. And he has also ordained that the church should be the vessel and the means by which our neighbors come into possession of the things that the Lord has for them. To steal from them through taking or keeping is to usurp or to flout God's authority, wisdom, and governments, governance. Don't you see it's a compound sin? There's no simple sin here. It's a compound sin. And I would be remiss if I failed to mention the fact that this command also applies to robbing God. Don't get quiet now. This is specifically in the scriptures. Malachi 3. Will a man rob God? And they're like, how have we robbed you? And he said, you give me the leftovers or the crumbs from your table." When I deserve the first fruits. Now listen, if you are doing that, I want you to feel encouragement. But also I want you to feel the challenge of the gospel. Because the gospel never stops challenging you on the front of generosity. Because you have a God whose generosity is inexhaustible. And he wants you to be like him. But be encouraged if you see this grace at work in your life. If this is not something that you are currently practicing, I want you to feel the sting of rebuke from the scriptures. God wants better for you than selfish hoarding and theft. It is possible to rob God. 10% is a bare minimum. 
It's a bare minimum. But God delights in even our small efforts to grow up in this way. And one more thing to put myself on the hook. The Erlethaler Confession of 1562 numbered among thieves those preachers who fail to preach rightly and piously. If God has given his word to you, then for me to withhold all that the scriptures teach is for me to be guilty of theft. So I must tell you what God has given for me to tell you from his word. Whether you like it or not, whether it's believable to you or not, whether it's comfortable to you or not, that's not my business. What you do with the word after that you bear responsibility for it before God and before your community. But it's important to recognize that this is one of the reasons why we try to give you the whole counsel of God. Because I don't want to be guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment and sinning against you in that way. But how does theft happen? Have you thought about that? How does theft happen? Here's how it happens. In our hearts, a want is twisted into a necessity or an entitlement. The heart of a thief begins in discontentment and ingratitude. The heart of a thief is fearful and selfish and envious and idolatrous and entitled and unloving and jealous and lazy and impatient and unjust. The heart of a thief sees the neighbor as undeserving and the self as deserving. The heart of a thief sees the neighbor as a competitor and views justice as a zero-sum game. More for you means less for me. But that's not true. That's not the picture we get from Scripture. Justice for you is health for me as well. Theft is a negative commentary on the fatherly care and provision of the Lord. This command says, trust God's provision, trust God's timing, trust God's just distributions, trust God's fatherly wisdom. And to all this, theft says, no. I will not trust God's provision. I will not trust God's timing. I will not trust God's distributions. And I will not trust God's fatherly wisdom. So I must unjustly take and keep. The heart of a thief twists a generous God into one who isn't a trustworthy father, but a derelict dad, an absentee father, or worse, a cruel father. When our hearts are in this place, listen to me, when our hearts are in this place, justifications for theft are easy when your heart's in that place. And you find yourself saying things like this, they're just a greedy company. Who cares if I spend two hours a day scrolling social media when I'm being paid to work? By the way, that's theft. We say things like the government mishandles what we pay in taxes anyway. Plus, the real crooks are the billionaires. 
Look at them, not me. We say the poor have just been lazy and should work hard like I have. I'm not going to give to support their laziness as if laziness is the primary reason why people wind up in poverty, which is contrary to the facts. We think God hasn't given me what I need, so I must take it. God isn't going to fill the gap, so I must keep it. And here's the thing. Theft is not just a crime between one individual and another. It's a crime against your whole community. It hurts the whole community. When you practice theft, you are formed into a certain kind of person. The kind of person that compromises the flourishing and the generosity of your community. Which means when you steal in any of these ways, unjust taking, unjust keeping, we're all made to suffer. This is how we steal. And I hope that you're getting just a picture of our brokenness and why we are in such deep need of rescue. And the good news is that the rescue has come. And this brings us to our second point, how we heal. Our second point brings us to our complimentary text today in the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. And this is a fairly well-known encounter and a favorite among children's Sunday school teachers. Now, unfortunately, what most people remember about Zacchaeus is that he was a wee little man. If I had Zacchaeus, I'd be mad as a hatter about that. That's all y'all remember me for, right? My hope is by the end of this sermon, you will remember Zacchaeus for far more than his stature. But think with me about the literary context of Luke 19. The story of Zacchaeus is a contrast to the story of the rich young ruler in the previous chapter. And his story is a striking manifestation of the grace of God. The story of Zacchaeus is a beautiful illustration of what Luke had recorded just a few verses back in chapter 18, verse 18 to 30. And it's there that Jesus said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Zacchaeus was just such a rich man for whom God had done the impossible by bringing him into the kingdom. And additionally, in chapter 18, verses 35 to 43, Jesus heals a man lost in blindness and poverty. But in this text, Jesus delivers a man lost in wealth and corruption. You know, there are more than one way to be lost out there. And if you're lost today in wealth and corruption, Jesus has come for people like you. Zacchaeus becomes a hopeful picture for us. Take a look at the text in verse 2. Verse 2 tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And to modern ears, that may sound like a pretty respectable line of work. But it was a most despised profession. And here's why. In his role, Zacchaeus would bid for and organize Roman taxes. The Romans would come to a jurisdiction and they would say, we need to raise $50,000 from this jurisdiction. 
And tax collectors would bid on it. And one tax collector may say, I'll give you 53. Another say, I'll give you 55. Another say, I got 60. I'll give you 60. And, and, the, and the Romans would say, sold. That tax collector was on the hook for bringing 60 grand to the Romans in taxes. But he made his money on inflating the taxes. So he might actually collect 120K. And he'd give the Romans their 60, and he would keep 60 for himself. So what we would see in this line of work is that as chief tax collector, not only was Zacchaeus collecting off of the backs of his people, he was, he was laying his burden on his, on his tax collectors that were underneath him, and then they would lay the burden. So it was like a pyramid scheme, and Zacchaeus was at the top of all the unjust theft of his own people. Just pillaging a people that was already poor and beat down by the taxation. He built his wealth on gouging his own people. Roman taxation, what you have to understand about Roman taxation is that it was sort of like a cross between the IRS and organized crime or the mafia. Imagine figures roaming our neighborhoods, grabbing people by their shirt collar, cornering them, and then impounding the belongings of their overburdened neighbors who they suspected of tax evasion. And then they would snitch on them to Rome. Tax collectors were a despised presence among the people because they were the face of Roman oppression, Roman extortion, and injustice. Tax collectors lived in luxury because they colluded with the enemy. But everything changes for Zacchaeus on the day that Jesus comes through Jericho. If you look at verses 5 through 6, we see that as news spreads of Jesus' arrival, crowds begin to gather. And the crowd is so thick that Zacchaeus, because he's short of stature, has to run down the road and he climbs a tree so that he can get a better view. And Zacchaeus' whole world is turned right side up when Jesus stops under the tree and calls Zacchaeus down. Jesus doesn't say to Zacchaeus, I would like to stay at your house. He says, I must stay at your house. And what this indicates in Luke's gospel is that it was exactly the kind of people like Zacchaeus that Jesus was sent to minister to. Zacchaeus was part of the mission of the Messiah. Isn't that good news? Just Luke has given us an indication. If you're in such a despised position today, if you are socially marginalized, if you're someone who's on the outs in society, you need to know that you're the exact type to whom Jesus was sent. And look at Zacchaeus' response. The text puts it beautifully. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. There is an urgency and a joy when Jesus calls him out of that tree and tells him he's coming to his house. But, as always, the ministry of Jesus was not without drama. 
Because in verse 7, we learn that the crowd disapproved of Jesus consorting with this known sinner. You notice what they say? He's, he's, he's kicking it with a sinner. And in the Greek text, with a sinner is fronted, which is meant to emphasize it. With a sinner. What's he doing with sinners? That's not what we imagine he would be like. They feel a certain social offense because tax collectors were known thieves. They condemned Zacchaeus out of hand as a sinner and they criticized Jesus for being the guest of such a man. But this text is meant to contrast the grumbling of the crowd with the joy of Zacchaeus. Don't you know when Jesus comes into your house, you can endure and withstand the grumbling of people out there who don't, who don't like you, the grumbling of people out there who don't understand you, the grumbling of people out there is of no consequence to you when Jesus has come into your house. You ain't worried about their approval. You're worried about making things right and living in a new kind of way. You see, far too many people are trying to do this both sides-ism. Well, well, what are the conservative people going to think about me? Or what are, what are the liberal people going to think about me? When neither of these should be any concern, we ought to be exclusively concerned with what does Jesus think about this life that I'm living. We're trying to do too much political calculus instead of doing what we know is morally and ethically right. But I love the witness of Zacchaeus because even in this nascent stage of his journey of spirituality, we see him saying, I don't need their approval. They can write all the tweets and blog posts they want because I'm looking at who's before me right here and I just, something, something about to change. We can feel it. He's not disturbed by the grumbling of the crowd. And what we see is that Jesus makes this outsider a kingdom insider. He didn't need the permission of the crowd. He didn't need their validation. His father gave him the work. And that's who he was being faithful to. Despite his past sins, despite his social betrayal, and despite the disapproval of the crowd, Jesus enfolds him. But once Zacchaeus receives Jesus with joy, his transformation immediately begins in verse 8. But I want you to notice something. I think it's pretty striking. I want you to notice that Luke doesn't report any specific teaching that Jesus gives to Zacchaeus. There's no miracle mentioned. No healing that is mentioned. It seems as if Zacchaeus is simply moved by the presence of Jesus. Nobody else would have been interested or willing to enter his house. The fact that Jesus was willing to come into his house, knowing that Zacchaeus was a thief, is what changed his life. But not just in a feel-good way. Not in the mode of easy believism. Not in the mode of fire insurance. Okay, I've got that grace. Ooh, I feel great. Not in the mode of therapeutic. His life is changed. Zacchaeus knows who he is. And Zacchaeus knows that Jesus knows who he is. And yet Jesus still communes with him. This is what moves Zacchaeus to true repentance. And his repentance 
necessarily leads to restitution. His repentance necessarily leads to restitution. We can't imagine Jesus resting content with Zacchaeus keeping stolen money and goods. And Zacchaeus understood this. But do we? Do we understand this? Do we think we can live the life of a thief once Jesus has come to our house? Do we think that we can unjustly keep what belongs to others once Jesus has come into our house? Let the church say, may it never be. Can you continue to steal by unjust taking? Can you continue to steal by unjust keeping? This passage answers those questions with an emphatic no. And it also gives us an emphatic yes to making restitution. Because look at the text. Put your eyes on the text. It's only after Zacchaeus' declaration of his commitment to making restitution that Jesus says salvation has come to this house. Jesus could have said it at any other point. But it's only after Zacchaeus makes his earnest declaration about making restitution that Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. And we can see from this text that restitution is actually the seal of true repentance for theft. I'm going to say that again. Restitution is actually the seal of true repentance for theft. In other words, if you're not willing to make restitution for what you have stolen, your repentance cannot be genuine. Restitution, or what is known today in contemporary language as reparation, is a lost ethic of the church. It's a lost ethic. It's not a new idea. This, this was not developed in the academy and handed down to us from the university system. This is not an example of going woke as if... Don't get me off on that. Don't get me off on that. Put in a better way, this is not an example of a departure from the scriptures. It's actually an example of a return to the scriptures. It's a return. This has always been the ethic of the church. You don't believe me? Augustine said this. If someone is able to restore the stolen property, which was the object of his sin, and does not restore it, his repentance is not real, but a pretense. If, however, he is really repenting, the sin cannot be forgiven before he returns what is stolen. That is one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church, echoing what I just said. Ezekiel Hopkins, another old school cat, said this, unjust possession, keeping it, is a continued and prolonged theft. Thomas Boston said this with, re with respect to inheriting stolen goods. What you have of him unjustly is still his, and ye are fraudulent and wrong possessors of it as if ye had directly stolen it. 
what I need y'all to do is don't politicize it. Theologize it. Because if you politicize it, then you say, mm, which partisan situation maps on to what I already believe? Where does this whole idea sit? Oh, and I'm, I'm conservative. So this, nah, this ain't an issue of conservative and liberal, conservative or progressive. This is an issue of biblical or unbiblical. And right now what we're talking about is the moral and ethical framework, not the practical outworking of it, which is admittedly complicated and will require an interdisciplinary approach in order to do it well. But what we're talking about right now is the church, not the government. What is our moral and ethical duty as God's people? To make things right. It's simple. It's to make things right, to bring healing, to bring renewal, to do justice. This is clear in Scripture. This is how Zacchaeus was transformed. But what is our hope? How are we healed? How do our thieving hearts find hope? We need more than just an uplifting example that encourages us to pay it forward. We need the experience of generosity that leads to the expression of generosity. The story of the gospel is a story of God's generosity to thieves and his redemptive work to heal those who steal, to turn takers into givers. Think about the gospel, family. Think about the story of the earthly life of Jesus. He directed his earthly ministry to thieves. He ate with thieves. He befriended thieves. He was betrayed by a thief named Judas for the price of a slave. And when Judas's betrayal was complete, he was crucified between two thieves. And one of them turns his thieving heart to Jesus and receives the promise of being with Christ in paradise on that day. This undeserved generosity to a thief gives living hope to thieves like us. And this is how he does it. Listen to me. The good news for thieves is this. On that day when Jesus Christ was nailed to a Roman cross between two thieves, he also took something that didn't belong to him. He took sin that didn't belong to him. He took shame that didn't belong to him. He took your griefs and your sorrows and your burdens and your failures. He took your place. And when the world, the flesh, and the devil stole your joy and stole your purpose and stole your hope, Jesus made reparations for thefts that he did not commit. You see, he looked at the need, not at who was worthy. He didn't look at whether or not he was obligated. His heart so swelled with love that he was willing to get in and fix what he did not break and mend what he did not tear and heal what he did not make sick. He did the work of repair for you, and he expects nothing less from your life. 
Don't tell me this is about liberal conservative. This is the gospel. It's at the core of the good news. Jesus taking what didn't belong to him and making right what he did not make wrong. If he made right in your life what he did not make wrong, then surely you can make repair for what you have done wrong, or at least try. I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. How can I make it right? Simple, right? It's not, it doesn't have to be overly complicated at a most fundamental level. This is how we heal, family. It's the grace of the gospel. The gospel is what energizes this ethic. The church is a community of redeemed thieves who are growing into a community of generous givers and repairers. And there's more gospel in this text. Because what's profound to me is that Zacchaeus climbed the tree to see Jesus. But Jesus climbed the tree to save Zacchaeus and you and me. Such was his love. This is the kind of love that can heal you of every internal evil of your heart that leads you to steal and to abandon the work of repair. So application. First, trust God's providence. Stop stealing from your employer by scrolling social media on work hours. Just simple, practical stuff, right? Make restitution a part of your framework when you do wrong or when you find yourself guilty of theft. And understand that you have not repented until you have made restitution, until you have made it right. This is the seal of your true repentance. This should be the real hashtag stop the steal in the church. Let's return to our ethic. Let us be a community that is committed to the work of reparation, addressing the results of theft wherever we see the need, whether we're the offending party or not, because our reason, our ultimate rationale is the gospel. And finally, practice generosity. And practice is the operative word there. Because practice means that we constantly need to take up new habits and new actions in order to flesh out what generosity could look like in our lives. Try things. Don't be afraid of failing. Try things. See what can happen as you practice generosity in an effort to lean against the impulse of your soul to theft. That is one of the antidotes to theft is by God's grace turning to engage the world with a spirit and a lens of generosity. God wants to form you from a taker into a giver. So let us bring our hearts humbly before him and ask him to do this work in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. 
For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.